Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. Gregory Treverton is a former U.S. intelligence officer who came up with kind of a distinction between metaphors of looking at a puzzle different than you would look at a mystery. And he was an intelligence, so he was primarily trying to describe the difference between traditional warfare and the war on terror. But what he described has since been applied to many different situations. He said a puzzle has very clear boundaries, right? Every piece fits within it. If you find all of the pieces and put them in the right place, then you will have a clear, exact picture of what is going on. A mystery, on the other hand, is different. A mystery has different clues. You don't know which apply and which don't. A problem with a mystery is often not enough information, but too much information, meaning is this thing a clue or is this just coincidence and we should discard it? And you've seen this distinction in different areas in life, right? So one area I would say illustrates this is the stock market. Some people want to treat the stock market like a puzzle, and you'll see ads that say, with my one course, you're guaranteed to make money on the stock market. They're treating it like a puzzle, but that's not true. The stock market's more like a mystery, right? There's clues to how it works, but nothing's guaranteed. Leadership is like a mystery, I wish leadership, whether it's teaching or coaching or church leadership, was like a puzzle where it's just put this person in this place and this is guaranteed to be the result. Any leader knows that's not how leadership works. Leadership is a mystery. You can have integrity and create good environments, but then at the day, God does what he wants. Another mystery is dating. <laughs> single men. The reason some of you are still single is you think a woman is a puzzle that she is like an algorithm on a computer that you can eventually figure out 100% once you know where all the ones and zeros go. I am here to tell you, single men, that women are not a puzzle, they are a mystery. She is leaving you clues. May God have mercy on you as you decipher them. <laughs> We're in a series called Keep Watch about the return of Jesus and the end of the world. Last week, Kyle kicked it off by reminding us from scripture, Jesus is coming back. Today, we're gonna build on that by asking, Okay, so what are the signs? As in, what are the signs of the end times? What are the signs that Jesus may return soon? I believe this question, and pretty much anything we would study regarding the end of the world and Jesus' return, is not like a puzzle, but is more like a mystery. Jesus says you can't know the exact time or hour, but he does say you can know the season. So we're gonna, not going to treat today like a puzzle. We're not going to ask who is the Antichrist, what is the mark of the beast. We're not going to go through every single sign uh, in Scripture that could happen before Jesus returns and put in a nice little chart for us all to memorize and go home. Those things are disputed even among Bible-believing Christians. What I want to do instead today is look at a series of Scriptures that give us clues as to the mystery of when Christ will return. Today will be a little bit different for me because typically when I preach, I like to have one scripture that is our central scripture. We unpack that, we understand it, we apply it, illustrate it, go home. Today, instead of having one scripture, we're going to have one concept. We're going to look at a bunch of scriptures in the New Testament that all use a similar phrase of either last days, last times, or last hour. 
These phrases are used a handful of times that when put together seem to give us clues as to the mystery of when these things will be and when Christ will return. Now I have to give you a warning. Today's gonna be a thick message. Uh, most time with one scripture, it's very simple. Today will maybe feel a little more complex and be a little heavier on the teaching, but it's because this matters. If scripture mentions something this often, we need to lean in and take notice. And it would be easy as we go through these scriptures today, you'll see, just to point a finger at the world and say, well, look how bad the world's messed up. What I wanna do today instead is look in the mirror and have these scriptures shine a light on us and say, what is scripture saying to us about what is going on in the world today. So I want you to lean in, I want you to take notes, even if for you taking notes means just using your phone to take a picture of what's on the screen. This matters. And here's why it matters. Because you have pain in your life that needs to be made right. Because you have injustice that you need Jesus to bring perfect justice for. Because you have loved ones who've had faith in Christ and you need to be reminded there is a time and it may be soon where you will worship Jesus with them. Because you have a terminal illness and you need to be reminded that this pain is not the end. Or because you have a marriage problem or an addiction problem or a finance problem or what does my future look like problem and Jesus is gonna remind you today you're a part of a bigger story and it has a culmination and it could be any moment. There is a day when all will bow before him and because Jesus is coming back, we know he will make everything right. Your tears will be wiped away. Perfect justice will be executed. Heaven will be brought. Everything that is broken will be mended. Every noble and beautiful thing you long for in your soul will be realized. All things will be made new. So today, we're going to lean in and ask, what do we look for? And most importantly, in light of that, how should we live? So I want you to lean in. God's got something good for you today. First sign comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, so there's our phrase, there will, there will be very difficult Times. Now, this word in the original language is used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus encounters two men who are possessed, Scripture says, by demons. In describing those men, it uses the same word, but it translates it as they were violent. And I like both of those interpretations could really illustrate the atmosphere of the last days. It's, it's violent times. It's difficult times. It's perilous. It's stressful times. It goes on, for people will love only themselves and their money. Now, we're gonna show this and then we'll show another screen in a second that extends these verses, but it kind of seems to me, I could be wrong, it seems as we read this that this is the domino that knocks over all the other dominoes. Because think of this, people love themselves and their money and that leads them to become boastful and proud. And the result of that is they scoff at God and because of all those things, they're disobedient to their parents, of course, and because they are not grateful, they're, because of that, they're not grateful. And then because they scoff at God and all these things, they don't consider anything sacred. And you'll see it goes on with just many more things that it sure seems all come from that first domino because look at it again. It says, in the last days, people love themselves and their money. First sign of the last days is this, a love of money. 
that interesting? That sure sounds like our world, doesn't it? In our country alone, the federal debt has reached record levels. American credit card debt has reached record levels. The savings rate is the lowest it's ever been. Sports gambling is soon to be legal in every state. People just wanna make quick money without working. In fact, recently, I think it was within the last couple of weeks, maybe the Powerball was over a billion dollars. I saw a news article where they had done a short survey of what people would do with that if they won. The article did say that one in three Americans will play the Powerball this year. So that means if you don't, somebody next to you is. It then went on to say only 55% if they won would tell their spouse. It's an okay time to ask your spouse. <laughs> Three quarters would not share their winnings with anybody and only 7% would donate to charity. Like you want a billion dollars. No, not giving a penny away. <laughs> and when you hear that, it's easy to say, man, those people are so greedy. But what we need to do is look in the mirror. When I do that, I realize I'm probably as greedy as any of those people. Now, I know I've stood on this stage before and said, if I won Powerball, I'd give it all away. But sometimes I don't know if that would actually be true. I was riding along the interstate just recently and saw one of those billboards that said Powerball was a billion dollars or whatever. And I was by myself, just had some time to think. I thought, you know, I, I could use that. I mean, after taxes, it's only like $500 million. But once I had that little amount, I could probably buy that ski lodge in Colorado I've always dreamed about and maybe go shopping on 30A right on the beach in Destin to get a big mansion. And if my family and friends were nice, maybe I'd let them use it a couple days a year. And you also have to know that we drive a van that's really old, like really old. It's got over 200,000 miles and scratches and dents and stains and it, it just looks like a van of a family that's raised four kids, right? It even does this thing where if you turn it all the way, it makes this clanking noise coming from the wheel that my mechanic promises me will not cause any big problems. But when you drive it, it sounds like the wheel's gonna fall and roll off just like in some bad movie or something. Not too long ago, I was at a red light and a, a, a nice black Tahoe pulled up right next to me. And I thought, my wife would look good in that thing. I mean, this thing didn't have any dents or scratches. It had tinted windows. It had nice rims. I mean, it didn't look like a kid had ever been in that car. <laughs> and I thought, that, that must be nice. My wife's thinking, I would look good in a black Tahoe if you wanna know. But what am I doing? I'm not being grateful for what God's blessed me with. I'm just dreaming of what I don't have and will compare myself to what other people have. And 1 Timothy 3 is holding up a mirror to say, hey, are you as greedy as Carl? <laughs> Are you as envious as Carl? Have you, have you set up automatic giving at church? Have you told your spouse about that secret credit card? Do you live on, not do you have on paper, do you live on a budget? Have you done a whole lot of Bible study to rationalize why anything in the Bible that talks about giving away 10% doesn't apply to you? See, 1 Timothy 3 says in the last days, people will love money. Let's go to the second sign. It's in 2 Peter. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth. Kyle referenced this quickly last week. Now, what is the truth? Well, Jesus says, Father, your word 
is truth. So here's the second sign. In the last days, people will mock God's word. Other translations say scoff. I mean, it kind of means the same thing. It's this. It's You believe that? The Bible? Come on. And this sure sounds like our world. There's a day in our country where students in Washington, D.C. public schools were required to bring the Bible with them to school because that's what they were taught out of. Today, this year, school districts in Utah and Texas have banned the Bible and had it physically removed from libraries in the school because they said it was too explicit. Facebook and YouTube blocked a church service of a church we're friends with from even being broadcast online. I asked them, what'd y'all do? They said, well, YouTube said it was too violent. I said, what was it? They said, oh, it was just a play about the crucifixion. Can't be on YouTube. It's comedians making fun of their Christian upbringing. It shows that mock Christian beliefs on sex and virginity and marriage. It's groups that deplatform you if you speak enough about God's plan. There's even a comedian recently who's kind of half comedian, half magician, and he was making fun of Christianity and the Bible, and he even held up a Bible and did some kind of magic trick where it started smoke, uh, smoking like it was on fire, and the whole crowd just laughed. And it's disappointing to hear people mock God's word, but we gotta look in the mirror. See, it's one thing for non-believers to mock the Bible. We should expect that they don't believe it. But when we who say it's God's word don't read, study, or live by it, who's making the bigger mockery of it? Is it the person who says they don't believe it and makes fun of the thing they don't believe in? Or is it the person who says they believe it but don't use it? All right, Carl. All right. <laughs> so just a few questions. Do you get in God's word every day? Do you talk about God's word just with whoever? If you have a lunch appointment, it's just... A, part of who you are and it just comes up. Are you memorizing a certain scripture right now? After our last Fruit of the Spirit series, I was almost inundated with people in our church telling me about, bragging to me about how their kids, even really little kids, as young as two years old, had memorized the list of the Fruit of the Spirit. I got videos and demonstrations in person and hats off to our SE Kids ministry staff and volunteers for putting that in the hearts and mouths and minds of our children. Yeah, we can clap for them, I think that's good. But here's my question. My question with that is, is that, is that just something, well, let's just, just let the little kids do that. Or did you memorize the fruit of the Spirit? Like, can you quote it as much as the two-year-olds in our church? Southeast, let's be devoted to God's word. Let's ask him to convict us and humble us and encourage us and comfort us daily through his word. Let's be so devoted to it and treasure it so much that God's spirit changes us from the inside out through being engaged with his truth through his word. So a watching world who wants to mock it looks at the fruit it's having in our lives and says, well, I can't mock it anymore. In fact, I want what you have. Let's be that kind of devoted to God's word. We're talking about signs of the last days. It did get me curious, you know, what are some signs out in our world today? And I ran across some bad signs I thought would be fun to show you just to put in contrast to what scripture says. I think we have pictures of a few of them we can put on the screen here. This one says, this is a work-free drug place. <laughs> Don't think that's what they meant to communicate, but let's keep it that way. <laughs> There's another one. I think they were trying to say different things, but it just says people are eating children. Probably not what they meant to communicate. And this last church is into Halloween. It says, Jesus scares. 
All right, next scripture, next scripture. Jude 1 says this, they, and if you read the verse before, it's the apostles, told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. Now, this we already ran across some scoffers in another scripture, but this one goes into the motive. It's to satisfy their ungodly desires. This phrase is the Greek word epithumios. And epithumios can mean several different things, but one way it's translated in the scriptures is this, lust. So another way you could translate this is they're scoffers whose purpose is to satisfy their lust or satisfy their sexual desires. And this translation says ungodly desires just to make it all-encompassing because that's the deeper, bigger meaning of it. But here's the third sign of the last times according to the New Testament. People will mock Christian sexual ethics. And this sure sounds like our world. You have governments around the world legalizing so-called marriage that goes against what God says is best. You have schools and sports leagues going against what God says is best regarding gender. You have musical artists who flaunt sex outside marriage. You even have churches, sadly, that take their stand. What they want to be known for is whatever you want to do sexually, we admit it. Come on. In fact, I had another pastor friend point out to me not too long ago that, you know, time to time, he, he and I both will have people argue with us about the authority and validity of Scripture. And it's always kind of this deep argument. But as he gets to know their story, he pointed out that most of the time when people are questioning the authority of the Bible, he really just needs to ask them this question, who do you want to have sex with? Because people use fancy words like, it's patriarchal, it's repressive, it's archaic. But my friend has realized that when people argue those things, almost all the time it just comes down to the fact that they want to have sex with someone that God says they shouldn't have sex with. And they try and intellectualize the argument, but it's just living out what the scripture says. Make no mistake, the world wants to mock and scoff at the Bible so that it can follow its sexual desires. But we need to look in the mirror. Do you have a sexual secret? Do you have one of those hidden apps on your phone that if your wife looked at it, it looks like a sports app? Nobody'd ever find it, but it's, it's something else. Do you have one face you put on at church, but then another face you put on for your OnlyFans account? Is there something you need to confess, not just to God, he knows, but to another person? Because I get why the world would do this. The pull of sexual temptation is so strong. It feels natural, it feels irresistible. But I believe the scripture is warning us, listen, in the last days, the world is gonna try and lure you in and do whatever it takes to follow your sexual desires. Next sign, 1 Timothy 4, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. Here's our fourth sign, an increased love for, for false teachers. And this sure sounds like our world. There used to be something years ago called the prosperity gospel, and it's mostly died out. It'll probably always be around just a little bit till Jesus returns. But the prosperity gospel went like this. It said, if you have enough faith, God will fulfill your wildest dreams with material things. If you have enough faith, if you believe them enough, you'll get the biggest house, you'll have a double salary, you'll, you'll get a nice new Tahoe, you'll have every material blessing you could ever want. And 
it kind of died off because one, it's not scriptural, but two, you can only dupe people so long before they realize this isn't true. What you have today, though, is something much more insidious. You have what one of my friends calls the emotional prosperity gospel. The emotional prosperity gospel is presented by some Christians to communicate that if you have enough faith, Jesus will always make you feel good. So you may not have a big house or nice car, but you're guaranteed to always be happy and have a good time. The emotional prosperity gospel sounds good because it uses scripture and it talks about things like peace and joy. It just leaves off other things from scripture like judgment, sacrifice, repentance. The emotional prosperity gospel stays away from scriptures that make me uncomfortable. The emotional prosperity gospel feels good. It sounds good. It's inspiring. And often what happens is you have an author or podcaster or Bible teacher who will use scripture to talk about the good things and they'll hook you in, but then they'll make a big left turn and take you somewhere that's not even close to scripture and orthodoxy. But we need to look in the mirror. Meaning, do you pray for conviction? Some of the times when I read the Bible or get around other Christians, I simply need to be comforted because life is hard. And that's one of the things Jesus and scripture do is they help me and give me hope. But Jesus said one of the reasons the spirit would be sent is to convict us and guide us into truth. Do you let God, do you ask for God to do that? A few years ago, my wife and I um, were having a, marriage fight. I don't remember which, what this one was about because uh, it was obviously really important and life-changing. But we always try and work it out before we go to bed. Occasionally, we're just so tired that staying up later is just making it worse and we just need cooler heads. Let's go to sleep. When we wake up in the morning, you know, everything will be good. And I would wake up in the morning and see her sleeping there peacefully. I'm like, how could someone argue with someone so peaceful? Like, baby, I love you. I forgive you. And we just move on with our day. And <laughs> that may sound like I'm always right. <laughs> she would also say she forgives me is what would really happen. But there was this one particular marriage fight where we went to bed and I was expecting to wake up the next morning to my alarm and just be, you know, peaceful and okay, let's just move on. But the moment my alarm went off, before I even realized what day it was, my body just filled with rage. And I was like, I am right. She is wrong. I'm gonna wait for her to apologize. And the whole time I'm getting ready to go to work for the day, I'm imagining how she will word her apology. I'm coming up with how I will phrase my forgiveness that I offer her, and I'm looking forward to this event to take place. In fact, <laughs> they let me preach here, isn't that great? So in fact, the way our house was set up at the time, um, I would walk, the way I had my quiet time set up is I would wake up before everybody. When I walked downstairs on the coffee table in our family room is where I kept my Bible. I just kept it out for everybody to see, um, but really so I would see it. So every morning when I walked downstairs, I would know, oh, get in the Word right now. Like, don't go make coffee. Don't fix breakfast. Don't leave to do whatever you got to do today. Just get in the Word and get on your knees to pray right now before you do anything else. So this particular day, I walk down the stairs full of anger and self-righteousness. I see my Bible. I stop on the stairs. Everybody else is asleep, but I just say out loud to myself, and I guess God, nope, and I turned and walked out the door. <laughs> and because I knew what was going to happen. I knew if I got in that word, God would convict me. 
I knew if I got in the word and then tried to get on my knees to pray and just even if I wanted to pray to God about something else, that I would be like, well, God, the elephant in the room is this thing. And I would have to repent and I would have to say I was sorry. I'd have to either go wake my wife up or, or send her a text or leave her a note to say, babe, I'm sorry. I need humility before Jesus. That remind me I need humility before you and we're good and please forgive me and I'll never do that again. I promise you love me. And I didn't want to do it. I just want to go about my day being right. By the way, whatever feelings of judgment you have towards me right now are completely valid. <laughs> but you know what happened. That didn't last long. And I tried to get it out of my mind. I had that picture of God's word and me ignoring it. And I was like, God, I, I know I can't ignore your word. And I got in his word later and repented to my wife. We went on about our day. But it's just a reminder of me of if I don't get in God's word... I'll just become someone who has to be always right every time. And that's not gonna be a good thing. And isn't that exactly what we all do? Like I wanna do what I want, so I'm gonna ignore what God says because I know I have sin and I don't wanna repent. So just, just a couple questions, just a couple. Do you avoid church sometimes because church is on Sunday most of the time and, and there was Saturday night and there was Saturday night and you know what God will say on Sunday so you just avoid it. Do you check out the theology of podcasts and authors before you dive into them, get hooked in? Do you approach God's word asking him to convict and sift you? That's how we fight false teaching. Last one is 1 John 2. Dear children, the last hour is here. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming and already many such Antichrists, plural, have appeared. From this we know the last hour has come. So it seems what people traditionally interpret this as saying is that there are lots of little a antichrists, but there will be at the end of time a single capital A antichrist. Okay, how do we know that these antichrists are here? How do we know how to identify them? These people left our churches. And he says church is plural because it's not just like one part of the body, but left like the capital C church. What defines you as an antichrist is you leave the church. So here's the last sign, people leaving the church. And that sure sounds like our world, doesn't it? I coach a handful of church planters because that's the world I've lived in for so long. And when a, when a church is young and uh, vulnerable and small and new, it is so heart-wrenching on a church planter when even one person leaves that church. And when I talk to church planners about this, I say, look, there's the friendship thing, which is difficult when they leave. But really, from a kingdom perspective, as long as they're going to another Bible-believing church, just celebrate that, honor that, they're gonna be okay. Here's what makes me lose sleep. It was when people leave our church for no church. It's when, in leaving our church, people are leaving Jesus. There is a movement today to encourage people to give up on church. They call it deconstructing. It really targets young people specifically. There was a so-called Christian magazine that had an article about this not too long ago, and the author wrote this. I believe deconstruction is the revival evangelicals have been praying for for centuries. It's still painful for me every time deconstruction leads people out of their faith completely. I don't believe that's God's intent for this process. Here's how she ends. But really, who could blame them? Who could blame them for leaving their faith? 
Well, the church is the bride of Christ. Some people say, you've heard this, I love Jesus, but not the church. But think about that. If you say to me, Carl, you are a fantastic guy. I love you. You are, you are handsome and you have great intellect and you're hilarious on top of all that. You're just the best guy I've ever met. But if you follow that up by saying, but I hate your wife, and then start listing the reasons, we are not going to be close. In fact, if you exposit on how much you hate my wife, if I do to you what I want to do to you, you will not love me by the end of the time I'm done with you. It is not possible for you to love me and hate my wife. If you think you can love me and hate my wife, you have no idea what it really means to love me. You cannot love Jesus and hate the church. She's his bride, but we gotta look in the mirror. So do you have a hypercritical spirit about church where whatever church event you go to when you leave, it's like you're on one of those NFL post-game shows where you just dissect every single thing that went wrong? When you encounter volunteers at church, do you take them for granted, treat them as common, or do you treat them as uncommon where they even, at this point, look for you because they know you're gonna ask them what to pray for or you're gonna go out of your way to thank them or more often than not, you have a gift card, just say, hey, enjoy some coffee this week on me, thanks for serving. Do you pray for the leaders of this church? Our elders, do you pray for Kyle? Do you pray for our campus pastors, our, our staff as a whole, our lay leaders? If you were taken into a court and put on trial about whether or not you love the church. And all they had was data. Like it didn't matter what you said or felt. So they had the data of your attendance, giving, serving, group participation, and how often you bring non-believers to church. Would you be convicted of loving the bride of Christ? In the last hour, you will know who antichrists are because they will leave the church. Does the church have problems? Yeah. she perfect? No. Heard a story of someone who said, you know, I got hurt by someone else at Southeast and I thought, well, that's a big church for you. So I left. And they said, then I went to a small church and I got hurt there as well. And I realized church is people. People are sinners, sinners, sin. This is the best group of sinners for me. So this is my home. Right. Winston Churchill once said, democracy is the worst form of government except for every other form ever invented. I agree. I would say church is the worst form of community ever invented except for every other form. I like the church, I love the church like I love my wife. Does she have flaws? I have to be careful here. <laughs> yeah. But she's beautiful, she makes me better, she gives me community, and God works through her. If you've been hurt by church, listen. Me too. Us too. And I know you're scared to be here. We want you to know we love you, it's worth it, and we even need you. So look at our list again. Signs of the last days will be increased love of money, mocking God's word, mocking Christian sexual ethics, 
increased love for false teachers and people leaving the church. It is tempting when we read scriptures like this to think, yeah, that, the world is so evil. Well, I'm evil. You know what else? You're evil. And that's why there's grace. So we can be washed clean and made new and enjoy connection with God and other people who need grace. Please do not hear this message as a condemnation of the world in which we live. World's gonna act worldly. Please hear these scriptures as a challenge to swim upstream and to continue fighting the good fight. You're running well. Don't give up. Sometimes when I read a good mystery, I guess wrong about how it's gonna end. But it sure seems from the clues in scripture we're living in the last days. Regardless, Jesus says there will be a singular last day. And here's what he says about it. It is my father's will that all who see his son Jesus and believe in him should have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. That means whether Jesus comes back in your lifetime or not, you can be raised to life with him. And you may have made a mockery of God and his truth. You may have been the definition of greed and love for money. You may have done whatever it takes to indulge your lust. You may have ignored the hard parts of scripture. You may have despised the bride. You may have despised the bride of Christ. The reality is all of us have done all those things. But Jesus offers grace so we can be washed clean. The only question that remains is, do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe he can save you? Do you believe he died on the cross for the sin of the world, meaning for you? Do you mean on that first Easter, he walked out of the tomb of alive to prove everything he ever said was true? Do you believe that he can give you a peace that supersedes your circumstance? Do you believe that confession is the path to healing? Do you believe that church, though it's made up of sinners, is the community that God wants you to be a part of? Do you believe you are covered by grace? Do you believe it is never too late? You are never too far gone? Do you believe that Jesus will raise you up at the last day? If so, enjoy the life that is truly life. And until he comes, Together, let's keep watch. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we repent. We repent of unbelief, of disbelief. So God, we tell you we believe. And, and, and as we do, our faith is not in our faith. Like if we believe strong enough, you'll save us. We just are believing in the right thing, which is you. So God, we repent for acting worldly. We repent, repent for sinning. We repent for being selfish. And God, we throw ourselves at your mercy once again. We are nothing without you. 
We are nothing without your grace. We cannot function without your truth. Thank you for loving us, God. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you want to hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.